0: All right, so uh, we are continuing in our series on Jonah, reminding ourselves of what happened last week. We talked about Jonah and his calling, Jonah and his calling, and Jonah decided to run from his calling, and in his fleeing from the calling of God, he ended up actually rejecting the presence of the Lord, what is the equivalent of, of spiritual suicide, Utterly rejecting the one God who is true and the one God in whom he has life. And we talked about how because of that, or he was running because he hated grace. He hated grace. He didn't want the free gift of salvation for himself and he didn't want it for others either. And so, I issued you guys with a challenge. You had homework. Hopefully you did your homework. Your homework was to think about what you are called to do, your calling, and how that calling is connected to the grace of God. So we're not just doing our calling uh, bare-boned, in the desire to just be obedient. Instead, we're actually pursuing uh, a knowledge of God's grace and growing in a knowledge of God's grace and pursuing that grace and, and spreading that grace to other people. So that is our goal in this series, that we might fulfill that calling. Now I recognize that is as a big call. And today we're gonna look at what happens when we do not fulfill that call. What happens when we do not fulfill it? Because we run from our callings. We sin, we rebel against the Lord, and we run. We can all identify with Jonah in that. And so the question is, when we do run, when we disobey, when we flee from what we've been called to do, how does God respond? How does God respond? We know that God could respond a number of ways, but God in his kind of most gracious will would hopefully respond how he responds to Jonah. This is actually God's gracious response to Jonah in the midst of his sin. And we're going to see that God graciously responds to Jonah in his rebellion by sending the storm. The storm is an act of God's grace. We also see that God is going to kind of challenge Jonah's identity and how he sees himself. He's going to challenge uh, his sinfulness. Put it right before him. And then finally, he's going to demand a sacrifice, that all disobedience demands a sacrifice. And those three things combine to make God's kind of that is how God pursues and disciplines Jonah, and is also ideally how he would pursue and discipline us. God could just leave us in our sin, he could just leave us to flee from his presence, but instead, this is how he pursues us by grace. So let's walk through that. Uh, Let's look at Jonah chapter 1, verses 4 through 16. Jonah chapter 1, verses 4 through 16. Jonah chapter 1, verse 4 through 16. All right. Starting with verse 4. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. and made vows. All right. So, in the last few verses, we saw Jonah running from the Lord, fleeing from his presence, and God responds by sending a storm. Verse 4, the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Now, if we are lucky, if we are blessed... This is how God is going to respond to our sinfulness and to our running away from him. That the greatest curse that God could give to his people is to abandon them to their sin. To give them exactly what they want. Jonah wanted to flee from the presence of the Lord, which meant spiritual suicide. And thankfully, the Lord would not put up with that. That actually, Jonah could not escape from the presence of the Lord... Because the Lord would not allow that to happen. So he's still in the presence of the Lord, but the Lord's presence has changed. The Lord's presence has changed. That this is not kind of the, the smiley, pour out blessing and goodness kind of presence of God anymore. That this is the presence of God as a, the disciplinarian. He is equally Father, but he is uh, disciplining his child. Now, we know what happens when, uh, you can think back to when you were a kid, and you see the, the face of your parent, when you know that you're not going to get away with it anymore. I'm sure we all know have that face in our mind. I, I have my, my mom, especially. She does this lip thing. Really. <laughs> my sister does it, too. All the, all the ladies in my family do it. Um, but we know that face, and we know what it means that, that no, I'm, I'm coming under discipline. Now that is what the, the Lord's face looks like towards Jonah at this point. That the Lord is present, but the Lord is, is taking him to task. And so, he sends this storm, he, he literally hurls it, he throws it at them. And in response to the storm, we're going to see the, the reactions, first of all, of, of the, the sailors, the mariners, and then we're going to see how Jonah responds. And oddly enough, that the sailors do better than Jonah. Verse 5. Then the mariners were afraid and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. Now, why is the storm a blessing? The storm is a blessing because it tests their would-be gods. Then in dire crisis, you're basically forced to look at your gods and your idols and ask yourself if they really work. Do they really work? And so each of these sailors is is crying out to his individual God, hoping that, that maybe one of them will save them. And they each, one by one, fail. And they're left recognizing that their gods are not gods, that their gods are not the true God, that their God is not powerful. Now, that is the, the blessing of true trials, is that they would strip away all of our false hopes, all of our false idols. Now, we see this in, in Chronicles 24. I think this is a good, I know, a striking example, that the Assyrians, the Ninevites, are going through and wiping out town after town, burning them to the ground. And each time they do, they burn the idol of that city. They burn it or they crush it. And then they, they say, where is your God? That God that was supposed to save you, we just burned it, we just crushed it. And that's actually, the Assyrians were, were the Lord's instrument as well. The Lord uses the storms, he uses the destruction to show us the, the real state of our gods. He uses that to to convict these sailors and leave them with with nothing less to hope on. And so I, I would ask you, in the midst of the storm, do you keep clinging to these same idols, these same false gods? Or do you go to the Lord, the one true God? Is, your, is comfort able to save you? Is, I don't know, money able to save you? Is pornography or your, your marriage or... Your spouse, your family, are all are those the things that we run to? They will be stripped away and they'll be shown to not be the gods that we wish they were. That is actually a great blessing by the Lord. That is his grace, that we would not have false gods but have the true one. All right, so they, the sailors are left with very little and now they are uh, no holds barred, they're, they're Desperately trying to save themselves from death, and that's the proper response to this kind of trial—that people be desperate for salvation. But where is Jonah? Where is Jonah? Middle of verse five. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. Jonah is asleep. All right. So we're used to someone being asleep in a boat during a storm. We think of Jesus here. All right. Uh, same situation, very different context. So Jesus was sleeping in the boat because he was right with God. And he was God. And so that he was Lord of the storm. And so when they wake him up, he says, ye little faith, like we are were, we were fine from the very beginning. That is not the case in Jonah. Same, same behavior, very different motivation. Jonah, being fast asleep, is just reinforcing his own apathy, his own comfortability with his sin. That he is tolerating it. And he's tolerated his sin to the extent that it doesn't even bother him. He's he's fast asleep. And doesn't even see the coming judgment of the Lord. That's where Christ would say, would rouse yourself, O sleeper that we can fall asleep. We forget what the Lord is actually doing and what the times are. And that is the the apathy, the sleep of death. We talk about Jonah dying when he is thrown into the water. I think he's most dead here. Is that he is resolved to his sin and he is is content in it. There is no other place that is more, more dangerous to be than that place. And so the Lord, in his grace... Verse 6, so the captain came and said to him, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. God sends a a non-believing, non-Israelite person to rouse him from his sleep and to to convict him, to call him, maybe your God will work. And the thing is that they're, they're treating Jonah like, okay, it's just one God among many, when Jonah's sitting on the fact that, that he knows the only God, the one true God. And yet he's, he's rejected that God. That though he has the greatest privilege of having this intimate connection with the one true God where they, they're left in the dark, he is rebelling from that one God. Which brings us to our second point. <coughs> Jonah has, has been awakened now. He's kind of been, been roused from his sleep. He sees the trial that is abo- like, uh, upon him. But that's not enough. You can't just be there sitting there recognizing your suffering. God actually takes it one step further. He has to show us our sin. He has to connect the trial to our own sinfulness. And that's what he does next. Verse 7. They said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. Now we can, we can imagine how Jonah must have been reacting to that. Kind of shaking in his boots, getting a little sweaty, like, uh. That God sovereignly sent a storm. I'm sure he can sovereignly make sure that that lots, or that Jonah's lot is picked. And So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. They said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? The sailors forced Jonah to look at and admit to his identity. Who is he? That's kind of one of the fundamental questions that we have to ask when when we are stuck in sin. Or rebelling from the Lord? Who are you? Who is Jonah? And who is Jonah? Jonah, it says, uh, verse nine: I am a Hebrew. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. That's probably not a full description. He leaves some stuff out of there. All right, what is what is his occupation? He's a prophet. He left that out um, conveniently. And as a prophet, he is supposed to receive the word of the Lord and take it to people who don't really want to hear it. He's the messenger, the bearer of of mercy and salvation to all the nations. He's not doing his job. Where is he from? He is from the promised land of Israel. That in all the world, there's this one little plot of land, and that is, that is the promised land. And that that land was uh, God's kind of special dwelling on earth. That he would bless his people, and that from that tiny little plot of land, the whole earth would be blessed. And he was from that place, the place of blessing. Now, of what people is Jonah? Jonah is a Hebrew. He's of the people of God. He's the chosen people of Israel. And we have to think that every other nation had a false God. That in all the world, only Israel knew the true God. That only Israel was the chosen people. And here's Jonah kind of turning his back on all of that. Jonah is, is ultimately, in this part of history, he's immensely blessed that he has the privilege of knowing the one true God. He has the blessing of then not even being just a normal follower. He has this intimate relationship with God that he hears his word and is the mouthpiece of salvation. This is, this is amazing identity to have. And Jonah is turning his back on that. And God kind of uses the sailors to, to bring him face to face with that that he has to say, this is who I am, but this is what I'm doing. That I'm doing the utter opposite of everything I've been called to. Everything that, that I've been blessed with. And I think we can, we can easily draw a connection there. That who are you? Who are you? What is your occupation? Probably a number of things, but your occupation is to as Christians, it's to glorify and enjoy God. And as we talked about last week, just enjoy His grace. Enjoy the fact that He freely loves you, that He's freely accepted you, and He just wants you to live in the midst of that. That is our occupation. To just ooze out the grace of God, receive it in and spread it out, and, and be all about it. Now, right, what is your country? What is your country? Your country is... The kingdom of heaven. That you are citizens of heaven. You are citizens of of glory and of the spirit. This is a this is a great place to, to call home. And of what people are you? You are the people of God. You're the people of Christ. You are the bride of Christ. You are the sons and daughters of Christ. That is a great identity that is a glorious identity. And when we're, we sin, we, we reject that identity. We basically live as, as orphans. We live as um, strangers to God, as foreigners. And God would say, like, in your sin, why are you running after these goofy, ridiculous things? Why would you not live out of this glorious identity that I have for you? That is who you are. Go, go back to who you, who you really are. And then in verse 10, the, the sailors are actually the ones who actually pushed that home. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Now this whole series is, is talking about absurdity. And this is the absurdity of the position switched here. That the sailors are now the prophets. That they're going to the prophet and rebuking him for not following and obeying the Lord. Now, we you should be ready for the Lord to speak in any context, in any way, God will use the most unlikely voice to to speak to you. And Jonah, who is supposed to be a, a blessing to all the nations, that's Israel's call. Be a blessing to all the nations, and here he is cursing the nations. That by his sin he actually becomes a curse to them. Now that's the that's the incredibly sad part of the story, is that that disobedient Christians and disobedient believers actually become a a stumbling block to those who don't know him. And that he's keeping them from, from understanding the nature of this God. Thankfully, God God works in spite of it. But that is the, that is the sorry reality of, of Jonah. So then, God puts this mirror up to us and says, look at, your, look at yourself. See the glory that you could have and see what you are choosing seeing who you see who you actually are and then who you are living as that's that's a powerful and convicting message yes cuz we are we are called to be glorious people and we are called that in Christ all right so god pursues us he he chastises us He shows us our sin that would connect those two dots. But then finally, he he demands a sacrifice. That in our sin, he he demands a sacrifice. And so, look at uh, verse 11. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. The wrath of God has to be satisfied somehow. You can't just sin against God and, and get off. That something has to give. That ultimately there has to be a sacrifice. Every sin demands a sacrifice. Every sin demands death in a way. And there's a couple ways you can offer that sacrifice. Jonah decides to pick that I will sacrifice myself for my own sin. Now, that is a legitimate option. Um, It's not the recommended one. Verse 12, he said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. So Jonah is faced with the reality of sin. (coughs) He sees his sin for the first time. God has made it all too clear that he's sinful. And how does Jonah react Jonah basically just says, well, I failed. I just need to die. Just kill me. We talked about last week that that Jonah hates grace. Jonah hates grace. And he hates grace for other people. He hates it for the Ninevites and he hates it for himself in a sense. That he doesn't try to be forgiven. He doesn't repent. He doesn't call out to the Lord. He just says, you know what? Uh, just, just kill me. This is a, a prophet whose holistic problem is that he he does not understand grace. He doesn't get it personally, and he can't offer it to others. And that's where that option is open to every person that they are rebelling against God, and you can choose for yourself to be punished for it. Now, thankfully, there's there's a second option. There's an the option. For someone else to be sacrificed for you. And oddly enough, that's how the sailors, I think, come to know the grace of God. Verse 13. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land. They're not, they're not going to do this plan. But they could not. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life. Lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly; they offered a sacrifice to the Lord, and they made vows. Now notice how the sailors respond. They see that. Why don't we repent? Why don't we cry out to the Lord for mercy? They seem to understand that that God might be a God of grace. And so they asked that they, they would receive mercy from doing what they don't fully understand, that God would not hold it against them for sacrificing this man. And they pick him up and hurl him into the sea. And Jonah, in his death, calms the storm. He, his death actually saves them, oddly enough. And then after they've been saved... They're not just content at that point. No, they, they sacrifice to the Lord and make vows. They kind of continue to seek the Lord even after they've been saved. Now, there's a weird thing here. Um, the book of John is kind of hard to interpret because there's lots of levels. I want to make sure we, we aren't simplistic with it. So that's where, that's where the sailors... They, they're all kind of saved by a, a messianic uh, salvation figure. That they are saved by the vicarious death of Jonah, oddly enough. That they, they trust that if Jonah dies in their place, they will be saved. All right. So what are we supposed to do with this story? What do you do with it? We can draw those kind of superficial connections and, and get some things out of it, but holistically, how are we supposed to tell the story? I think there's there's two ways we tell the story. Um, we tell the story from from God's perspective in Jonah's. Now, we've talked about God's perspective, that in our sin, he pursues us, he shows us our sin, he, he shows us the need of a sacrifice. But so far, that would be uh, acceptable in... A Jewish synagogue. That, that's what they would believe. That's how they would interpret it. Even in Islam, that would be tolerable. And so at this point, we, we haven't actually interpreted it as Christians yet. So, we have to interpret the, the behavior of God through the lens of Jesus. That Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God's character. And so how do we read this so that we're getting Christ out of it? I think we see that, first of all, that we can trust that God is disciplining us and not just condemning us or punishing us because we know of our relationship with God through Christ. That Christ already paid the punishment and we are never going to stand under the punishment of God ever again that if you've received Christ's punishment, then, then you've already been through the cross, you have died, you have paid every penalty for sin, and now you are a child. God will never judge you again. Now you are a child, you'll be disciplined. And that might seem like and feel like the same thing, but that, there's a world of difference there. Discipline is to give us something kind of very tangible, a tangible uh, difficulty or trial, so that we don't fall prey to the the real things that kill you, so kids, we give them you guys get d- disciplined, right? Now, if they didn't get disciplined, then maybe your discipline would come a lot later when they get sent to jail <laughs> or you know, or like run out in the street and get hit by a car, and like that would be their judgment. but no, they're disciplined so that They don't fall prey to the the really bad things. They're given some kind of like a very tangible evidence of that thing. And that's where the Lord does give us trials. But he gives us trials because he loves us in Christ as his children and is protecting us from that sleep of death that Jonah was falling prey to. All right. Likewise, we see that Jesus is uh, he's the, the ultimate sacrifice. He's the ultimate sacrifice. And so that even when the sailors were looking to Jonah, they are ultimately looking to Christ. <coughs> that Jesus Christ is the only sacrifice for our sins. He is the only sacrifice. And yes, we sin. And yes, we rebel. But we can rebel bring that rebellion to Jesus bring it at the cross and he takes it from us the payment has been paid in Christ all right but then okay that's kind of the god aspect of it how Jesus is this is the ultimate revelation of god's character but where do we get this Jonah part that's where Jesus is the better Jonah Jesus is the better Jonah Jonah is a miserable prophet He's a miserable prophet who doesn't understand grace, who is, is sleeping on the job, who is rebelling from the job. And then we have Jesus, the true prophet. And when Jesus comes, he doesn't run from his mission. He doesn't condemn his peop- the, the, us, his, the people of God, by being rebellious. He doesn't bring storms upon his people. No, we have the storms and he enters into them. He comes to be with us in the storm willingly and freely. And when he comes, he comes to bless. He comes to bless us. He comes to to comfort us. And he comes to be that final sacrifice. So Jonah's sacrifice was like an unwilling sacrifice because he deserved to die for his sin. Jesus is a willing sacrifice to die for our sins. That's how Jesus talks about the book of Jonah. That Jonah is a miserable prophet and people still came to faith. And now we have such a better savior. We have Jesus, the better prophet who comes to die for our sins, who comes to to be the only one who is truly innocent. We see them cry out, if this guy is innocent, Lord, please do not hold us condemned. Jesus was the innocent one. And he died for our place so that we would be restored to God. All right. so what do we do with all this? What do we do with all this? Your main take home is not to go be a better Jonah. Not be bad like a Jonah or don't be good like a sailor. No, your, your, your take home is listen to your better prophet. Listen to Jesus Christ. Receive the grace that is found in him. Now, we could stop there. Just receive that grace. Live in the midst of it. Love the fact that you have been given immense grace, that Christ has died for you. But then it would say that your identity in Christ, as these glorious sons and daughters, as the bride of Christ, live out of that. Go live as those people live as people who are not orphans or foreigners to God, but, but those who are beloved and taken care of, and even in the midst of trial, even in the midst of storm, are, are under God's abundant grace. Only when you understand that are you called to do anything else. You're not allowed to do anything else until you understand that. You're just going to mess it all up and get the order all wrong, and there's going to be no joy in it. Only once you understand grace are you allowed to do anything else that you're called to do. Because then out of that grace, you're gonna just going to obey to pursue more of it. You've got a taste for the grace of God and you're going to run after the grace of God. That you're not going to read your Bible to be a good Christian. You're going to read it because it talks about grace and you love that. That you're going to share your faith because you just love talking about grace. That's the goal. That is the goal. So, let us praise Jesus Christ for his abundant grace.